How's everybody doing? Good. Isn't it good to be together again this week? Uh-huh. Isn't it good to be together? Yeah, it's good to catch up with you guys and see how your week's going. I'm going to sit here this evening, kind of be a little more chilled out. We're, we're doing a series that Tanner had mentioned, just entitled B, for the Beatitudes. Quick quiz. What does uh, Beatitudes mean? Blessing. What's the Latin, Tanner? Is that what it is? I, that was, I learned that for the first time last week. I did not know that. I thought it was just something about an attitude you were supposed to have. I didn't know. Thank you for teaching us. And that was one, one little thing. Well, we're going to keep rolling. This is the first week. This is the second week. And we're going to get into... Um, every week we're going to study one verse. We're going to move on to the next verse and move on to the next verse. So if you'll turn to Matthew 5, chapter 3... We're going to try to do two things at once this evening. I have a handout that's coming around. And um, if you don't have a pen, make sure you ask for one. We're going to study the Bible. And we're going to st- I'd like to throw at you some principles for how to study the Bible. So you, you not only know how we... You not only know where we ended, but how we got there. Who here knows what the word hermeneutics means? It's one of those fancy theological terms. Yeah, go ahead. Pretty much, it, it, you could dumb it down to how to study the Bible. <laughs> There's a little bit more technical the, a word for that. Anybody else know? Do you, do you remember, Jen? Yeah, the art and science of Bible study. And so, when I say a hermeneutical principle... We're going to go, I think I have five on your sheet this evening. We're going to work our way through chapter 5, verse 3. And I want to give you some some principles that you can apply in your own Bible study. I hope that's going to be helpful for you. So come on in, find a seat, grab a paper. If you don't have a pen, we have pens for you. Hermeneutics, like Herman, last name Nudic. <laughs> Herman Nudic. It's amazing, you, you think, really, you're going to look at one verse, and then you start digging into one verse, and you cannot believe just how much is there. When you learn to dig into God's Word... He never disappoints you with the depth that's there. Let's start with 5.1. Just to want to grab some context. This is what Tanner taught on last week. Matthew 5, chapter 1, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he, this is Jesus, went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them. Doesn't seem like there's that much there, the beginning of the context. But I'd like to propose, Tanner mentioned this last week. Now, this wasn't the first thing that Jesus ever said 
if you go back a couple chapters, you'll see he said other things. But this is the first official sermon that Jesus gave. Let's just think about this. Why is it important? Or why did Matthew include... Guys, listen. He opened his mouth and taught them. Matthew was a Jew, right? What was he trying to get across to his listeners? Yeah, and Anthony. What was Matthew's point in the Gospels? He was trying to... Okay. Mm-hmm. Did Matthew just want to say that this is a rabbi? What did Matthew, what was he getting at? Jesus is the Messiah King. That's a loaded word. Messiah means the coming one. King means the king who we have expected, like King David. And Messiah, the coming one, takes you the whole way back to Genesis chapter 3, when God said the seed of the woman will crush Satan's head. And Matthew says, and he opened his mouth. The king is speaking. Okay? The king of kings is about to give his first sermon. The Messiah is speaking. The one we have been waiting for, Matthew said, is about to open his mouth. Let's go a little bit further. Now, who do you know Jesus for who he is? Who does scripture say Jesus is? Think Colossians 1. John, do you know? What's that? The exact representation of God? Okay, that is one thing. What did Jesus do specifically to do with creation? Who knows? Yeah. Do you remember that verse in Colossians, Eliot? For by him all things were created, and without him nothing was made that was made. When Jesus opens his mouth, things happen. Like let there be light. That's a big thing. When Jesus opens his mouth and creation created, big things happened. You look at um, Matthew 7, 28, 7, 29, Mark 1, 22. When Jesus opened his mouth and the people listened, they were astonished at his teaching. And Matthew says, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Guys, when Jesus opens his mouth, you should listen to the Creator, King, Messiah that we have been waiting for since Genesis chapter 3, the fall, is about to teach you something. Let's keep reading. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Okay, here's the first hermeneutical principle to write down. Guys, you've got to pay attention to the order. God's not random. Okay? He, 
He has a purpose for putting things firstest. First. Okay? And that's gonna, one of the things that you're going to need to learn how to do is use study tools. There, there's great um, study tools that Tanner and I use that you can access online. We can show you. But you need to know which, which words came first. Because first has importance. And why did Jesus, why did he have this verse first? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He didn't have to. He could have put another one first. Do you think that's important that he said that first? That when he opened his mouth, that's the first thing that was said? It's huge. Guys, if you don't get the poor in spirit, if you don't get that, you don't get the kingdom. There's a purpose why God, Jesus, starts out with the kingdom of heaven in verse 3, and he bookends it with the kingdom of heaven in verse 10. Because all of the things of the kingdom, if you don't get verse 3, the poor in spirit, you don't get any of them and you don't get the kingdom. There's a reason why this is first. Because we can't move on until you get this. Okay? Pay attention to order. Um, here's the next thing. The next hermeneutical principle. Read the words again and again, and again, and again. Don't just breeze over them. Read them. Who has the ESV? Could you read it for me? Real loud. Um, just verse 3. 5-3. Five, three. 5-3, three, please. Who's got the NIV? Could you read it for me? Read it loud. Who's got the, uh, the New King James Version? Go ahead, Elliot. Who's got another version I haven't mentioned yet? What do you got? The NASB. Let's hear it. Who's got the ESV? Read it. That's good. Who's got the New King James Version? See, what you guys got to learn to do is you have to learn to meditate on the Word. And you don't meditate on the Word by reading it one time. You read it again, and you read it again, and you think about it. If I could write down the amount of times I've thought about 5-3, it's on my mind a lot. The verses before it, they're on my mind. I think about the ones before it. I think about the ones after it. Again, and you've got to memorize it. The psalm, what did the psalmist say? He said, I meditate on your word day and night. It was a constant thing. If you want to get God's word, you've got to learn to read it again and again and again. You've got to learn to meditate on it. The next thing that we talked about, hermeneutical principle number three, is you just can't read the words. Okay? You've got to know the meaning of the words. We take for granted that we know what these words mean because you read them in English. But God had them written in a specific time in history in the Greek language or in the Old Testament, the, um, the uh, Hebrew language. He had it for a purpose. And I want to know what those words mean. 
So if you were to look at this list of words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Read that a few times and tell me, what words do you need to know what they mean? And just tell me out loud. Yeah, what does that mean? Does it mean what I think it means? Because that just sounds like one of those words that like my grandma says to me. You're so blessed. Who cares? Blessed, what does that mean? What, what, what other word? Poor. What else? What are some other words that we need to know what they mean? Spirit. What else? What's that? Theirs. Who do you think the theirs is referring to? It's a good question. What other word? What other phrase do we should we think about tonight? Yeah, the kingdom of heaven. We're going to spend our time this evening looking at this blessed, poor in spirit, and the kingdom of heaven. And you start asking yourself questions like, what do they mean? When did they happen? Here's something interesting. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven is one of the only ones that's present tense. The rest of them are shall. What's, what's that? What's up with that? That's a good question. Um, we need to understand the words. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Here's three questions that I've thought of right away. The word blessed. One, what does it mean? Words have meanings. That's important. Don't just assume that you know what blessed means. The second thing is, why is it first? Why did Christ say blessed first? The the third thing is, why did Christ repeat it nine times? Count words. God doesn't stutter. He has a purpose for saying something. Blessed, 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 blessed. Blessed. You think he's trying to get your attention? Blessed, blessed, blessed. Count words. There's a a reason that God said that, Christ said that, nine times. That's a good question. Okay, let's start with, um, what does the word blessed mean? Any ideas? What do you think blessed means? I looked it up, so if you're wrong, I'll tell you. Yeah, Elliot. God's favor is upon you. Okay? I would say that that's part of the word. I would say that's this is a big word. What else? Happy. That's not kind of superficial, isn't it? Surfacy. 
Maybe, you, maybe we don't know what happy means, is the question. What did you say? Fortunate. Yeah. Happy. Fortunate. Blessed. And, and right away, when I think of the word happy, I think, wait a second. Is Christ saying what I think he's saying? Um, for instance, Christ wasn't the only person to use this word, machanoia. Other persons to use it was Homer. Remember Homer? This is, how he, this is how he used it before Christ. He says, it's, this word is like that of a wealthy man. They are happy. That sounds familiar. Plato said, it's like that of a man whose business is successful. He's blessed. He's fortunate. He's happy. That's interesting to me. I think this word, it is what I think it means. But what, what, what we do is um, we don't think deeply enough about the words like happy. We think it's superficial. This is a, this is a happiness, a blessedness that is it's much more deeper than anything that you can experience or have experienced possibly We're just in chasing the things in the world. Did you know that um, God is happy? That's what First Timothy 1, 11, and six fifteen says that God is blessed. God's that superficial, really? God's happy? Yeah, he is. You know what James says? James 1 says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Do you know what that means? Is that blessedness and happiness that, this, that God feels, it's from him. See, that, that, that puts a light on the word blessed that goes much deeper than I, I think of the word. It's something that can't be taken. It's something that doesn't come and go. It's permanent. It's eternal. This is a, a, this is a happy, like you, like, you don't just think of like, wow, this milkshake makes me happy. It's a little different. Um, why is it first? And why does Jesus repeat it? Because he didn't have to. Jesus did not have to say it nine times. You know why I think it is? Is because happiness, blessedness, is what the world wants. Think of who Jesus was talking to. His disciples were sitting with him. The multitudes were sitting next to him. They were listening to him. And nine times he says the exact thing that the world wants desires more than anything else. The world wants to be happy. You want to be happy. Your friends want to be blessed. They want to be fortunate. And Christ knows his creation well. Don't forget who he is. He knows what they want. But he offers them a happiness and a blessedness in a a far deeper way than they have ever expected. There's a reason why he says it first. It's just like Jesus to go after our heart. You look at the Gospels, and every time a person come up to Jesus, they would, they'd ask him a question, and um, he would go right for their heart. That's what he was after. He, didn't, he wasn't after superficial things. He, wanted, he wants my whole heart for him. Okay? He's going after their heart. And when he said, 
Blessed, blessed. They were shocked. What's this? What are you talking about? That's what I want. It's to come. I want you to notice this. I want you to stop and consider the world's wisdom of happiness. Because it's a little different. The world's economy and God's economy is very different. With the world's economy, happiness is the goal. It's the end. It's why you do what you do. Is happiness the end in this verse? Read it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is it the end of this verse? Is it the point of this verse? Uh-uh. It's not even the means. It's just a, a statement of fact. He's just stating something like the temperature. 67 degrees outside. It's not the end. It's not the means. It's just the fact. The person in this verse is blessed. But in the world standard, everything we do is to get this. It's, it's like the goal. Why, do you, why, why did you choose this school? Well, I thought I would get this degree. Why did you get this degree? Because I wanted to get this job. Why did you want to get that job? Because I figured that job would pay pretty good. Why did you want that job to pay pretty good? Because I wanted a lot of money. Why do you want a lot of money? Because I wanted to be happy. Right? Why why are you hanging out with that guy? He's fun. Why is he fun? Why makes me happy? Why why, why did you choose that car? What gets good gas mileage? Why do you care about the gas mileage? Because I can save money. Why do you want to save money? Because I... You see how it goes. Everything we do, we think that happiness is the end. We think that that's the point. In Christ's economy, happiness is not the end. It's just a byproduct. It's just a mere statement of fact. I'd like to think of um, happiness as an indicator light in your car. Or like a thermometer. It's just merely telling you a fact, nothing else that's going on. Okay? If your engine is overheating, the light comes on. If the temperature rises, the needle rises. Christ says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He's just stating the fact. Okay? He's, he's saying there's an indicator light. Oh, you're not blessed? You're not happy? Maybe you should rest of the verse. Are happy? Like I'm talking about here? Then you may have gotten the rest of the verse. Okay? Um, why does the world... Oh, how does the world say to get this elusive happiness? You got to get more. You got to get a lot of it. You got to get it now. I was watching a, a documentary called Happiness. And um, these psychologists and scientists were saying pretty much what, if you want to be happy, here's, what you got, here's what's got to happen. Something has got to trigger, like something new will happen, in, and your, your eye will catch it, and it will trigger in your head dopamine. And the dopamine will cause a synapse in your brain, and you'll feel it will make you happy. So, but the problem is, is that, like, let's say um, Matt Tex goes for a run, and he runs down 19th Street, and he's like, whoa, a new house. I never saw it before. It makes him kind of happy. 
But the problem is, is that tomorrow when he runs down there, well, it's the same old, same old, and the dopamine's not working anymore, and there's no more snacks. So guess what he's got to do? He's got to run someplace else. So he runs down Keggy, and, ooh, look, there's a stoplight. He's like, that makes me happy. Something new. <laughs> and tomorrow, he runs down it again, and he sees it, and he's like, see, it's never-ending. This is the world's advice of how to, you've got to do something different. You've got to do something more. It's, it's not lasting. And this is not the kind of happy blessedness that the eternal God is. He's content. And he offers it to you. Let's keep reading. Um, this reminds me, I just wrote a little note. It reminds, you know what cribbing is? A horse cribs. What they do is they go up to a fence post and they go... <laughs> Seriously. They bite and they, they, they suck air in really fast and it releases an endorphin in their head and it gives them a little high and they're like, whoa. And they keep doing that. And if you see a horse who's in a pasture who's extremely skinny, it's because he cribs and he can't get enough of it. And it'll kill him. That's why they put these, these halters, a cribbing halter on a horse because it can never get enough. So what you do is you put this steel halter on, so when they go, <coughs> it chokes them. It hurts, because they won't eat. And you think it's so stupid, but that's the same thing we do. We just keep going after something, no matter what it costs. We just, we just want to get that elusive blessedness. We'll do whatever it takes. I just thought of that with horses. Let's move on. In God's economy, yeah, in God's economy, we don't seek happiness to be happy. We seek something else, and we find out that we are happy. So who is blessed? Who is happy? Well, read the next section in the verse. Blessed are the poor in spirit. These people... Are this. For these people have this. Huh. So the blessed are the poor in spirit. What do you think it means to be poor in this verse? Hermeneutical principle number four. Three. You've got to read the words. You've got to understand the words. What do you think it means? Because poor has a lot of terms. A lot of meanings. What do you think it means? Any guesses? To what? Broke. What do you mean by that? Have nothing. Any other guesses? To be what? Humbled. What else? Empty. What else? Not self-sufficient. So, needy. Okay, what else? Do you, let me think of a, a little example from the Bible. Do you remember the poor widow? Who had, you remember, you remember how much she had? How much did she have? She had two coins. That poor widow was not that poor. Okay? Um, in Luke 6, no, in Luke 21, 2, the poor widow, the poor widow is called Panacharos because she at least had two coins. That's not this broke. This is not the same poor. This is patokas. It means you have nothing. 
It means you're, you're broke. It means that you have nothing else to do but beg. Okay? Zilch. You're not like of humble means. You got nothing. This poor is nothing. Nothing at all to offer. You dig in your pockets and you don't even have a pocket. It's just nothing. Okay? You're broke. That's this poor. So Christians should be poor, right? Should Christians be poor? Should, Christians, should a good Christian be broke? Should a good Christian have nothing? Because a lot of people go here. And if you go to Luke chapter 6, it says, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And people say, huh, so I guess I should sell everything and give it to the poor because then God will love me more. Then I'll be a good Christian. Okay, hermeneutical principle number four. You've got to consider the context. Consider the context. Don't just read one word. Read the words around the words. What words are surrounding poor? Poor what? Poor in spirit. Okay, that just takes us to a whole other level. Oh, and this is something I learned too. You've got Luke chapter 6, which just says poor. And you got Matthew 5, which says poor in spirit. So what you do as a Bible interpreter is you take the two passages and you use the one with more explanation to explain the one with less explanation. So the correct interpretation is blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, that, that is not an a external poorness. That's not a, a poorness of circumstances. That's a whole different level. This is a, an internal poverty. This is the spirit, like as in the spirit that is within you, spirit. Okay? That's what this spirit is. What does this mean? Well, let's think about this. What would it look like to be rich in spirit? If poor in spirit means that on the inside, you have nothing to offer. You're a beggar. What would it look like to be rich in spirit? Let's just play opposites to try to understand this word. Any ideas? You're rich in spirit. You are what? What? You're God. God is rich in spirit. Okay. You've got a lot. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Thank you, Deontay. What else? You're rich in spirit. What do you look like? You think you have a lot to offer. You're wealthy. What else? What's that? You are very confident. Why should you ask? You've got what you need, right? What else? You're rich in spirit. You're satisfied. With, what are you satisfied with? With what you got. Right? I'd like to... I, I, I'll throw a couple words in there. You're independent. You don't need to beg. For Pete's sake, you have it. You're, you're, you're not needy. You're arrogant. You're full of pride. You're self-sustaining. I'd like you to think of the rich young ruler who walked away from Christ because he thought he knew better. I'd like you to think of Lazarus and the rich man who had what he needed in this life. I'd like you to think of the Pharisee 
who said, thank you, God, that I am not like him. Remember him? I'd like you to think about Demas. Who's Demas? Why? Yeah, because he loved the world. He thought that he had treasures and wealth and everything that would satisfy a man outside of Christ. I'd like you to think of Satan, who, who rose up and said, I will be like the Most High God. That is rich, wealthy in spirit. That's also severely deluded and disillusioned. Let's keep going. This person believes that he or she has much to offer God. Did you ever hear this? people say, well, at least I still got my pride? <laughs> still got my pride. What an arrogant thing to say. I've said that, or I've thought that. People, when people say, when they, they think about, um, like, how they would justify themselves before a holy God. And they say, well, I just hope I've done enough things in life to, that he'll let me in. That's rich in spirit. Not blessed. Apparently not the kingdom of heaven. If you think you've got a lot to offer. Acts 17.24. You don't have to turn there. But pretty much the gist of it says... God doesn't dwell in houses made with hands. He doesn't, he doesn't need any of those things. What are you going to build him? What are you going to build God, a God who doesn't even need a house? What do you got for him? You got nothing. Let's go to Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, 1. Okay, listen to this. Thus says the Lord, the Lord speaking through Isaiah, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hands have made. What, are you going to give me back something that I made? Really? And I like how he puts all these things into a category. This is the category. For all those things my hand has made, and those things exist. What's the category? They exist. What are you going to give to a God who is um, eternal? They, who is he created the things that exist. That's like, I, I told this before, that would be like, um, if you owed me money and you went to my bank account and you took out 10 bucks and said, here's the 10 bucks I owe you. I'm like, that's my money. Really? You're going to give me back my money? I didn't want that. I didn't, I, well, thank you. But that was already mine. What are you going to give to the Lord that he doesn't already have? I'll, I'll show you. Keep reading. I love this verse. But on this one, but on this one, but this is the one which I will look. The gaze of God is on this one, on him who is poor. That's the same poor. The nothing, the beggar, the I've got nothing to offer. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit. That's your same phrase. 
as, as Matthew 5, 3. Poor in spirit, but the Lord added in the contrite, the broken. He sees who he is and he's broken before the Lord and who trembles at my word. This is the person who has the gaze of God. This person is blessed. Not because of what he has, but because of what somebody else has. I'd like you to, um, to consider this. My friend, you're bankrupt. Spiritually, you've got nothing to offer before a holy God. You're bankrupt. You're broke. Isaiah 64, 6, your righteousness is as what? The best you got is as what? You know it. Tell me. Filthy rags. You've got nothing. That's right where you should be, too. Poor in spirit. I want to think of the irony for a second of this verse. Consider the irony. The bankrupt have great wealth, right? The poor in spirit, what do they get? The kingdom of heaven. Huh, a little different than the world's economy. The poor are wealthy. I want you to think of this irony. The poor are happy. Isn't that interesting? Because that's not how the world thinks. That's how Christ thinks. That's God's economy. It's a little different. And then I want to close. I want to look at that last phrase. The kingdom of heaven. We're going to look at this. We're going to bite on this a little different. All right? When you think of the kingdom of heaven, what comes to your mind? Tell me some things. Streets of gold. What else? Thank you, Deontay. That was good. (laughs) What else? Yeah. What's that? Unapproachable light. What else? More things. Yeah. Salvation by God. Kingdom of heaven. What else? Eternal. What else? What's that? Tree of life. What else? Justice. What else? Yeah. Heaven, right? Future things, right? That's not what the verse says. What's the verse say? Somebody read it to me. Houston, what does it say? When? 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 Is. 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 For there's is the kingdom of... That's a big word. We should have wrote that up there. For there's is the kingdom... Right now is the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus thinks kingdom... When I think kingdom, I think future tense. When Jesus thinks kingdom, what's he think? Present tense. What else does he think? Let me give you some examples. Let's go to Matthew 13. Okay, Matthew 13, we'll start with 31. This is Jesus talking. He's talking, these are the kingdom parables. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed it in his field. You know who the point of this parable is? It's Jesus. 32. 
um, 33, in another parable, he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. You know who the point of this parable is? It's Jesus. Okay. Again, the treasure, the kingdom of heaven in verse 44 is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for the, all his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys it. You knew the, the point of this parable is it's Jesus. When Jesus thinks of the kingdom of heaven, who does it center on? It centers on him. Okay, go back to Matthew 5. Happy, blessed are those who are bankrupt, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, Matthew, the Jew, wants people to know that the king is here, the king is speaking, and the pearl of the kingdom is speaking to them. Okay? Jesus himself. You know what would heaven would be like without Jesus? You know what the pearly gates and the... The, uh, the tree of life, and do you know what the, um, the streets of gold would be like without Jesus? It would be hell in the sky, okay? The, the good thing about heaven isn't the streets of gold, okay? Without Jesus, it's nothing. It's nothing. The good thing about the kingdom of heaven and these things that we look forward to it's to be with my Savior. And Jesus says, the poor in spirit, those who are bankrupt, they, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you get that? We're not talking about the future heaven. We're talking about something present. We're talking about Christ himself and the things of the kingdom which revolve and rotate around Jesus Christ himself. Here's the big idea. When you see that you are spiritually bankrupt, you have nothing to offer, that you are a beggar, then you will get that in Jesus are the unsearchable riches. Not someday in the future. It's now, present tense, you have the pearl of the kingdom. And do you know what that makes you? You know what that makes you? Happy. Makes you blessed beyond measure. You see how it kind of comes back around? That's not the point. That's the point. You need to figure out that you're that. For all have sinned and fall short of the... You're, you're bankrupt. You've got no hope. And in Christ are all the riches. And when you, when you put these two together, that my holy God has made a way for a sinful Andy to be a son of the king, you know what that makes me? Oh, I'm blessed beyond measure. I wore this shirt on purpose tonight. It's my worm shirt. I got so excited about Isaiah 41, 14 that I made a shirt. We should read it together. Like four years ago. In Isaiah 41, 14, God is comforting Israel. They have totally turned their back on Him. They have totally, um, uh, they, they, are, they are worshiping idols. They're making idols and worshiping idols. And God says, that that's the stupidest thing to do. You take a log 
and you choose a log and then you carve it and then you say, thank you, log. And God says, what? And so because of their sin, they are now in captivity. And in, verse, in chapter 41, God is comforting them. And I'm going to skip to 14 and I'm going to show you how God comforts his people. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, another name for Israel. Fear not, you worm, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. That doesn't sound like too much of an encouragement there. Until you get that word worm. Okay? You've got to get the word worm. It's not just a worm. The word can also mean scarlet. And if you, if you study this word and you look at where it's used in Scripture, scarlet appears all over the New Testament, Old Testament when it comes to things that should remind you of redemption. Key number one. This was a red worm. Okay? And what it would do is it would crawl up a tree when it was going to have a, babe, a family it would crawl up a, a big safe tree and it would hold on to this tree and it would die right there. Okay? And it would, when it died, it would, there would be a, a, a scarlet outline around the worm and they would crush that worm and then use it to, um, to, to dye their wool. But this worm would hold on to this tree so tightly it would die right there and have a family. And you know what God says? Fear not, you worm. You hold on to me, okay? Hold on until you die. And I will help you, says the Holy One of Israel. The Holy God. Do you get that? That's a compliment. Hold, fear not, you poor in spirit. You worm. You... And I say that with a condensation in my voice. I'm going, to try, I'm going to say it a little differently. Fear not, you worm. I'm going to help you. That's what we are called to be. To realize that our sufficiency is not our self-esteem. Our sufficiency is from a Savior who is rich. You know what that makes us? Happy. Blessed beyond measure. Let's keep I want a couple closing thoughts. I'd like to ask you about your indicator light. How's your indicator light? How's the happy level? The blessed level? Because the Lord has given you emotions for a purpose. Okay? They're not... They have a purpose. God could have totally made you a robot. But He didn't. He gave you emotions. If you're feeling discouraged, you should evaluate yourself. David said, search me and try me and see if there is any unclean way within me. There could be sin going on there. Not happy? Maybe you think you're rich in spirit. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe you're full of pride and arrogance and you're trying to do it alone and you're looking for happiness and satisfaction as if it's the end. And you keep looking and it gives you a boop, little bit of dopamine, but then you've got to run down some other street because the snaps ain't happening anymore. Okay? Maybe that's, maybe that's why the indicator light is going off. Not happy? 
lot of times us as Christians need to be reminded of the riches that we have in Christ. We forget. Peter says sometimes we forget to the point of blindness. Isaiah 66, 2. Maybe you need to be reminded that the gaze of God is on the poor and the contrite spirit. Not happy? Maybe you need to be reminded that your sins have been removed, which, by the way, you were as guilty as sin. And through Christ, God throws them over his shoulder. He takes them, and then he removes us from our transgressions. You know what that makes you? Something so much deeper than a smile. So much more blessed than a dopamine, adrenaline rush. Not happy? Maybe you need to remember that everything you need for life and godliness is in Christ Jesus. I could go on and on. I'll close with this. Are you still looking for happiness? Quit looking for happiness. It's not the point. Happiness is not the point. Faith in Jesus and repentance of your arrogance and sin is the point. And when you get that, when you get that you are bankrupt, you have nothing to offer, and who Christ is and the riches in Him, you'll find yourself, you find yourself happy. You find yourself blessed. And you, you look at a guy like Job and he says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This, this blessedness is so much deeper than anything the world's got to offer. Let's pray. Lord, we do love you. Lord, I feel like um, the more we open up Scripture, the, the deeper the riches of Scripture are, Lord. And Scripture is not the point. You're the point. Lord, help us not to just hear these words. Lord, help us to savor these words and to obey these words and to believe these words and to repent to these words, Lord, that tells us of the truth of you. Lord, thank you that you did not leave us in our poor state like you could have. Lord, thank you for sending the riches of your only Son. Lord, we are a happy, strange, peculiar people. And Lord, I um, increase our joy. Pray that we would seek your joy, that we would bless you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.